The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi. Hi, this is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm your host at The Visual Workplace, our weekly radio show where we explore and celebrate the principles and practices, concepts and tools, methods and strategies, people and results of learning about and applying workplace visuality, letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system, your intelligence, my intelligence, the intelligence of the operational system into the landscape of work through visual devices, through visual mini-systems, through visual information sharing. Why? So we can reap the benefits of doing so, both in terms of bottom line results, and they are substantial, 15 to 30% increase in throughput, substantial dramatic reduces in defects, long lead times, changeover, accuracy, customer satisfaction, the whole gamut. We do it to reap the huge bottom line benefits and also to enjoy ourselves at work. So we can go to work and we can have work without struggle. And the struggle in a non-visual workplace or a pre-visual workplace come, comes in the form of information deficits, missing information, missing answers to questions we sometimes don't even vocalize, questions that have been so habituated in our mind and so chronic and unanswered that we don't even bother. We simply do without the information that we actually need, sometimes desperately makes a huge difference and also the presence of information deficits missing answers creates a lot of interruptions during the course of everyone's day you're interrupting someone or someone is interrupting me to ask a question in order to retrieve missing information and you know those those interruptions each of them research has told us costs us eight to ten minutes to recover from Not to just get back to what we were doing before. That happens pretty much instantly. You take 30 seconds, you answer a question, you're back to work. But to achieve the same level of focus, of targeted attention as we had before the interruption. And I tell you, some people are interrupted many, many, many times during an hour. We call them supervisors. (laughs) But sometimes it's you as as an employee who's on the value add level. I'll tell you, I had that in my company for the longest time. I wanted to create a big firm, and I had a lot of people running around. And then two years ago, I said, nope, no more. I moved everything to Michigan, where there are wonderful people who are helping me with 
with product and product fulfillment. And I'm here solo. I have my cat. I have an, my, my boyfriend who visits occasionally. And I have my work that I can concentrate on without interruption. I unplug the phones. Those interruptions were costing me the work that I love to do, which is to think, to write, to create ways of presenting this information to you so you can use it. That's what I love to do. That, that's where my gift is. And I wanted to exercise my gift. That is, as I like to say it, the race that I want to run. That's where I'm not just a little dumpy old horse, but I'm a thoroughbred. And that's the way we are at work. We master these areas. We have not just skill, but gifts that we bring to it. And these missing answers, these constant, constant interruptions keep us from our gift. They keep us from that deep flow where we're connected to the inner resource that we've been given. And we begin to express ourselves even while we make a contribution to the corporation. That's what work is supposed to be. That's work that makes sense, which is, by the, ti- by the way, the title of my new book, Work That Makes Sense, which won the Shingle Prize. I'm going to be going down to Florida in a couple of months to receive that prize. And my brother, Gary, who is a poet and a plumber, uh, is coming to see it, which is great. And Gary doesn't, isn't that interested in my work, but he's making me feel really wonderful by showing up at the, at the awards. So on this show, we do... A lot of things around visuality. We interview master practitioners. We interview leaders of companies who are implementing visuality strategically. We interview the change agents, the CI managers, the authors of other books. It doesn't matter what you make, whether you work in a hospital, a bank, a factory, continuous process flow, utilities company, discrete manufacturing, assembly, doesn't matter, welding. You need visuality if you want to make it right. Make it at the least cost, the most safety, the highest quality, the least distance, the least time. You'll need visuality if you need to make it again, high volume, low mix, or if you don't make it again very often at all, but still need to keep the, keep the production profile, low volume, high complexity. Even artists need visuality, and they are absolutely not doing in their mind standard work, but if you watch them, they are. They got paintbrushes, they got a palette, they have to clean their tools, they have to find the color they want. I'm thinking of a painter now. My brother also used to be a painter. You'll need the technologies of the visual workplace if your company is a company of work. A retail outlet, dry cleaners, massive food manufacturer, military depot, open pit mine. Visuality is a language. It is the language of work. It is the language of your intelligence, your operational, your work intelligence, what you've learned over the years or what you need to know because you're brand new, deeply embedded into the landscape of work. And it doesn't get there by accident. It doesn't get there by magic. It doesn't get there unless you put it there. By now, you know me well enough that I am opposed to cookie-cutter visuality, not because it ain't pretty, but because it doesn't work and because it interrupts the process of creating deeply local responses, visual responses to deeply local challenges. I call it the weird factor. If your visual devices don't slip into the realm of weird, wow, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it brilliant? Wow, that's genius then there's something wrong with how you're implementing and you're not getting the full power of your visuality. It's a language that allows us to write simple letters but also poetries that make our socks roll up and down. Okay, so it's a language. 
and it is used as a function of work. The cultural aspect of the visual workplace has to do with not just the alignment of people, but with the improvement of business, because when you align people, they want to improve the business. They have deep resources at their proposal at their disposal that they that were previously being consumed by all the noise in the system. Especially in the US, we want to be winners. But it also has to do with the sterling opportunity, visuality, to get smarter about work and leave that legacy of smartness to whoever comes next in the form of visual devices. This is a living legacy. Think of the roadways, think of airports, the tarmacs, all the visual devices and many systems that are embedded there intentionally and firmly, even fiercely in place because we got smarter about safety, about speed, about costs, about the resource we call geography space. Why shouldn't that happen in every workplace? A space that is designed to minimize struggle and maximize excellence even when your product takes two years to make or even when your product slips in and out of the door before noon or even when your product is a healthy patient, is a healthy person. So today we are going to continue our discussion of Doorway 4. We started it the last time we were kind of in the lecture mode of this show, which happens especially when I travel, and I'm doing a lot of that lately. We're in Doorway 4 Visual Leadership. We covered the first element of this very important doorway, Visual Metrics, just previously in a previous show. In this show, we're going to start marrying up Visual Metrics with problem solving, what I call visual problem solving. This is going to take us two shows to get through. And then after that, we'll get to the leadership part, what you might call Hoshin, I'll call it Hoshin as well, Visual Deployment. When I'm on the road, when this show airs, this particular show, I'll be in somewhere in Australia working with clients, peddling my paradigm, doing some good or so I intend. So today is another closed, um, can't call in show, I'm sorry, but it's also going to be another visual workplace lesson. Hopefully it doesn't sound like some dreary lesson, Gwendolyn droning on about visuality as a language or the power of visual information sharing. Oh, la da <laughs> Hopefully you'll find it useful. I particularly like uh, what we're, I'm going to be presenting today. I've been living with this problem-solving paradigm for about 30 years, and I am um, kind of thrilled to, to be sharing it with you. So hopefully I will succeed in bringing life to this dynamic field of study I called workplace visuality the technologies of the visual workplace, and hopefully I'll speak persuasively of its relevance and its contribution to business, benefit, to cultural alignment, and an overall good time at work. Let's party. (laughs) I find there is, honestly, a quickening of interest in workplace visuality just over the past year. Maybe you've noticed it too. I'm guessing that people and companies have pretty much exhausted the current focus on lean and waste reduction. They're doing a really good job. This related to the critical path, the value stream, and they want to amplify their gains and anchor them. Workplace visuality is the natural, the perfect choice for that. But it is also for those of you who haven't yet started your so-called lean journey, either because the paradigm doesn't really fit your industry or because you know, you're fighting fires and you can't find time to actually re-engineer time or the resources to re-engineer your critical path, which is what Lean is fundamentally about. I make the distinction very, very 
cleanly between lean and visual. And so you may be what's called in a traditional workplace. And visuality comes to the rescue there because it will help you to see your current operational system, which is a lot smarter than an outsider might suspect. Don't let them poo-poo the good work that you've been doing for years and decades. There is a good system underneath. You just have to kind of surface it, highlight it, and visuality will help in that. And from that point of view, it will help you improve. It will buy you the margin you need to take a longer look and to make commitments to maybe more radical changes. So before we start, and we're going to go into a break in just a moment, I want to take a moment to thank Voice America for inviting me about eight or nine months ago to do this show. It has proven to be a terrific experience for me, and I want to say thank you, and a bit of a terrifying one. I love, love, love sharing what I've learned. The only missing piece is, as far as I can tell, is your voice joining mine in conversation and exchange. We're getting a nice flow of emails. Heard from somebody today from San Juan, many, mostly with thanks. But I tell you, I'm ready for more. I'm ready for your questions on your dilemmas and your experiences and your stories. I am ready when you are. We can do an hour of clinic helping you sort through what's standing in your way or imagining powerful next steps. We can gossip about your boss or your boss's boss and take on really big conundrums. We can take on the world and recreate it on this show. That's what it's for. So I'm expecting to continue with live shows in March. But right now I'm traveling and ay ay ay, it's very hard. So I want to cultivate our rapport. Okay? So we can travel at least part of this journey together. I'm going to make one announcement uh, when I come back from the break about a seminar I'm doing in New England. Uh, I want to encourage you to come, and then we'll get into the topic. Thanks very much. I'll see you in a minute. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. 
Hi. Hi again. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and you have joined us at The Visual Workplace, that little shop on the corner, The Visual Workplace. Today, we're going to be looking at visual problem solving, which is one of the elements of doorway number four called visual leadership. It is the executive doorway, and I'd like to unfold that a little bit and make, and make sure you understand what I mean by executive and why there are thumbprints. There should be the thumbprints of your executive all over this door. Going in and out, in and out, in and out. <laughs> but first, I want to tell you that we're doing a visual workplace, visual thinking seminar in Rhode Island under the auspices of Lean Enterprise Institute. That's Jim Womack's group, now headed up by John Shook. We're doing it on March the 27th in Rhode Island. You can find that on my website and, um, and LEI's. It's LA, I think it's called lean.org. Yeah. And on the 28th, we go to v- Vibeco. Vibrators. They make big industrial vib- vibrators. So get your imagination in the right place there. And um, the head there is Carl Wadenstein. He's the owner and legendary uh, leader and uh, voice of Lean, Lean Nation. But what's so interesting about what we're doing there is that um, Carl wants to go visual, but he wants a group of people to come in while he's lean with only a little bit of visual and then he wants us to come back a year later or maybe eight months later and see his plant when it's made the conversion. He's got 50 or 60 people there. It's a small intimate plant but it's got all of the dynamics of any company. Resistors and enthusiasts and uh, easy stuff and hard stuff and hidden stuff and deeply, deeply hidden stuff and visuality will be I think, a spectacular addition to an already uh, remarkable journey. So I hope you can join us. You'll find it on my website, along with lots of other things, visualworkplace.com, and on the lean.org website, AI in Boston. Or you can email us at radio at visualworkplace.com. Okay, thanks. I'm going to India in two days. Oh, my goodness. I haven't been there in 15 years. Oh, boy. I'm really excited. I'll tell you more when I come back. Today, we're going to be looking at visual problem solving. So when we begin with doorway four, this is what has to be in place. First, you have to be a company that starts collecting or is collecting data. Feedback on your own performance. Feedback on the performance of the workforce. If you're not doing that, then you can't move on to stage two, which is problem solving, and you can't move on to stage three, which is driving the ship, driving the boat, driving the airplane called Hoshin. You need to start collecting data. Many, many American companies still don't do that. Just choose a single cell. Don't worry about doing it through the whole plant if your plant is 1,500 people or 50 people. Just start in one department and learn how to collect data and keep it modest. You can use a set of key performance indicators. These are metrics that monitor performance. They track performance. Don't worry about moving on to the second dimension of that, which is to drive uh, performance through improvement, what we talked about in the visual metrics show. Just start collecting data so you get used to the fact that these numbers, this information tells you something about how things are going. Of course, it can get very, very specific and very overblown, I think. But if you haven't started that and you want to get to problem solving, start that so you can get to problem solving. 
When you get to problem solving, I'm going to share with you today, it's going to be two parts, my particular bend on problem solving. It's a little bit different, but it has served me well over the last 28, 29 years. Let me give you some history about how I first entered the field of both visuality and visual problem solving. Visual problem solving was my first area of work when I came into workplace improvement in 1983. As you may recall, I landed a job with a firm called Productivity Inc. They were based in Boston. They were to become the premier resource for information for books from Japan in the world. At the time, the then owner, Norman Bodak, who you may also know know very well, was looking for ways to turn the books that he bought and that he translated for a lot of money into English, into more revenue. He was quite a businessman. And so he heard about this thing called training courses. And he said, I got to get the, this information that's now in English into a revenue-generating form called a training course. And he hired me in on that. I had never done it before. But he liked, he liked what I was writing about in my dissertation about the participation of the poor in local decision-making I stayed on his server computer for 18 months, and then one day he noticed me and offered me a job. I think I told you that story, too. It sounded sort of Japanese to him, and he was an entrepreneur, and his sentences weren't very long. He just made decisions, decisions. So I said yes. And he said, okay, your first project is to turn Chapter 3 of my first book, Managerial Engineering, Managerial Engineering, into a training course. So... I can make my money back and buy more books. The author of this book was a very strange name, very nice person, very brilliant person, Ryuji Fukuda, Dr. Ryuji Fukuda. And I certainly didn't know it at the time, but that was the start of a relationship that endures to this day with a Japanese master. Chapter 3 was about problem solving, a methodology that Fukuda had developed while he was at Sumitomo, this great Japanese master corporation they were the ones if you remember in our award show that helped Packer Electric become world class in the 1970s and 80s boy they drove those guys but what Fukuda did is he wanted to use Ishikawa's fishbone diagram but with greater strength he had some very complex projects and he found that the fishbone was limited because of the space and because of the categories of men, materials. You guys are probably familiar with this. And so what he did, very broadly put, is he added stuff to it. And one of the things he added was cards, little post-it notes where people could write things down. Anyway, the name of his adaptation is called was called CDAC, Cause and Effect Diagram with the Addition of Cards. I lived with that form for eight, nine years, studying it, using it, applying it, developing it. I used Fukuda's genius as a base, but I wanted to turn, because he asked me to, and because Norman asked me to, to turn it into something that Western companies could use. I learned a lot. I contributed a lot. In the end, when I started my own company, I saw it something that was more streamlined, but I never left the initial learnings, and I want to share some of those with you today as we walk through visual problem solving as part of Doorway 4. So this is going to be a show about premise and concept. We are not on the tool 
level yet. We're talking about principles of problem solving. I'm not codifying this into a lesson. I'm just going to have a conversation with you because I want to make it very friendly and put a lot of context around it. So some of you have seen the basic methodology of CDAC as it evolved when I was working with Fukuda in the 8D methodology. Some of you are using that. Some of you are using the currently wildly popular and pretty effective A3. These are all visual methods. They're all visual. In the words of uh, that I'm going to borrow from an earlier guest, uh, Dean Shaw, Dean Carroll Shaw of the University of Dayton. These methods are visual, hidden in plain sight. You kind of take it for granted. We don't see the visuality of problem solving that is up on a bulletin board or stringing across the wall on a piece of paper, like in process improvement mapping, as something visual because we don't see it as following a visual protocol, but one of it's effective because it is visual. That's part of its effectiveness. Hidden in plain sight. We have to name the obvious, and in that way, we make it our own. We harness it. So the profile of problem solving that I want to describe to you is certainly and always visual. I want to make sure you make much of that, and I want you to even make more of that. But i got to kind of build the case first. So I want to share with you some of the truly astonishing treasures that I've discovered in my journey through the problem-solving paradigm. You may already know this. If you do, then we'll have a great conversation. But right now, it's got to be a bit of a lecture. I'm now going to be Professor Gwetty. I'm going to put on her hat. It's pointed, by the way, and it comes with a broom. (laughs) So I'm going to kind of go on. And I hope you listen. I hope you listen for what treasures you identify that are useful to you. Personally speaking, I think of problem solving as as much of an art form as, as a scientific protocol. So here's the, the, the fundamentals. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be including this in my new visual leadership book or maybe a companion book because I consider great problem solving not a drudgery but as a vital demonstration of leadership, brains, tenacity, creativity, courage, innovation. It's a form of warfare. It takes skill and stamina and a will to win to solve, to solve, to solve all that needs to be solved permanently and in a way that's dazzling. So we're going into a break now and I'm going to uh, give you what I think will be a rather surprising definition of what a standard is when you come back. See you in a minute. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. 
Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, it's Gwendolyn. Hi. And you are listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. And today we are discussing visual problem solving. We have entered doorway four and we're beginning to unnest the elements of problem solving, of problem solving that dazzles, I suppose you could say. So it's going to take us a couple of shows. Right now I'm kind of giving you some fundamentals and I want to share some very telling insights. So I had this telling insight when I was working with Fukuda during those during the 1980s. All problem solving, all problem solving methods is fundamentally about this, creating new standards, new standard procedures, new SOPs or improving them, new and improved. So you can achieve the value and the dimensionality your customers want. New, clear, standard procedures are the result of problem solving and these procedures enable you to achieve your technical standards because when we are creating a new standard, we have two types, the procedural standard, which is the how, and the technical standard, which is the what, your specs. So I have a definition of standard that I acquired from Fukuda one day, on my first study mission to Japan, it was about 1985, we were having a delicate cup of Japanese tea in delicate Japanese teacups in the lobby of some splendid Tokyo hotel. And I asked him, rather innocently, hey, uh, I didn't say hey, <laughs> you never say hey to Dr. Fukuda, Dr. Fukuda sensei, please, what is a standard? Because I kept hearing that word. And remember, I used to be a Latin teacher and an actor in New York. So I didn't have a context for these things. I'm not an engineer. I wish I were. I'd love to be an engineer to understand these things from the inside out. I'm just a, you know, a person who thinks. So I say to him, hey, no, I don't say hey, hey sensei, <laughs> sensei, Fukuda. Fukuda sensei, what is a standard? I asked out of my abject ignorance. And he answered, out of his 50-pound head egg elegance, the 50-pound head elegance of a man who knew. And what he said almost made me fall off my chair. This is what he said. He said, a standard, said Fukuda-san, a standard is made up of only those elements which, when not followed, result in a predictable defect or waste. 
That was his definition, I suppose, Sumitomo's definition of a standard. Only those elements which, when not followed, result in a predictable defect or waste. Those are the three operative words. Only those elements not followed, when not followed, resulting in a defect or waste that you can predict because you know how those elements work. Now, think about that. Remember the saying, the end of the journey begins at the first step. This is a case in point. Your foundational premise, the underlying logic of the thing, allows you to move forward in the direction of your destination. Get that right and you can build a skyscraper or a spaceship port. Get it wrong and you can't move forward an inch. You can be busy, but you won't be productive. So the premise here, the fundamental premise is... Only those elements which were not followed. This was, by, you know, I, I'm working with this to this day. As I was preparing to talk to you today, I thought, wow, this is amazing. So what happened to me then is I lived with that for over the course of seven or eight years. And early on, I realized that when Fukuda was talking about elements, he was talking about cause. He didn't use that word. That was my word. Cause with a capital C. Cause and its partner, effect. And then it hit me, of course, whoa, we're talking about the cause and effect diagram. These Japanese are way ahead of me. But I was catching up and I was putting more flesh on the bones than they needed. So when I, then we say it again, a standard is a method. It's a kind of reliable procedure that's made up of only those causes that trigger specific outcomes or effects. You get the causes right, you'll get the effect right. I did my little dog and pony show in the 1980s about how a good cause produces a good effect and a bad cause produces a bad effect. And it was as though I was discovering the wheel. I'm sure that many people thought, I'm paying my money to hear this whatever say that because it sounds like kindergarten, doesn't it? But in fact, it represents the the foundation that we can stand on the road that will be our journey. Let me map out some of the implications. If a good cause produces a good effect, then a standard procedure, a reliable method, must be made up of good causes. When we create a standard procedure, then, we must identify what the series of good causes are that will result in that desired outcome. So it isn't just finding the good causes, but it's finding the sequence of good causes. What is the correct sequence? How many standards, and I'm not complaining, I'm just noting, How many visual standards, doorway two, have I seen that map out every single tiny little thing that you do, including what I do with the pinky on my left hand? Ticka, 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 ticka. Every stinking thing. Nothing wrong with that. Right? That's like second cut standard work. First cut is the big chunks. Then you start drilling it down into refinement. But for third cut standard work, because what we're talking about is standard work, that's what standards are. So when we're doing our problem solving, we're creating new standard work. 
third cut standard work, you start pulling away. You start streamlining it and you say, what components of this are essential? And when we see a problem, and there are very, very few companies that are on the level to be able to see with this level of transparency, when we see a problem, we should and could and must be able to identify the cause that wiggled. But we don't have that level of refinement yet. It's one of the reasons why A3 is so effective and so popular because it does not address cause on this kind of multivariate level, this nested cause. And I applaud A3 because it's going to create the room for more elegant problem solving, the kind that most companies can't reach for right now. They simply don't have that level of control. They're in noise. It's noise. They're surrounded by noise. And they're trying to get enough quiet to just think and find their way through. So I know this is, I'm making much of it, but for me, it was a real revelation. So with that firmly and clearly in our mind, let's turn our attention to the matter of problem solving. In fact, I would posit again that we're not really looking for a solution to a problem as much as seeking to define the correct sequence of causes that will result in the solution, the outcome we want. Problem solving, the way it's commonly used, is more, you know, where it's commonly and I think not completely used, is more like taking an aspirin for toothache. The pain will go away for a while, we hope, but sooner or later we'll still have to face our rotting tooth. buys us some time, but sooner or later we're going to have to get to the bottom of things. And that bottom is not a silver bullet. I want to make that clear. It's multivariate because life is multivariate. That means there are many factors impinging upon each other. It's a system. It's a system of causes. Okay. And if we took that, if we take that intellectual uh, point of view, then we have a chance to not just attack but to give our problems the time and the cultivation that they need to come out with really, really strong, long-lasting results that we can build on that build us, that provide us with more margin. So I want us, I'm going to just suggest to you that you think about going further than solving the immediate condition, which A3 does very, very well. I love A3. I kiss your feet. But the one that I'm talking about is is a problem-solving approach of extraordinary strength. It is the strength that has been the hallmark of the Japanese mind. It holds on. It's tenacious. It has such a rigorous set of requirements for such a thing as called a solution that cause bends to its will. So I want to say that learning humility has been a big part of my life. <laughs> Maybe it's been a part of yours as well, but it's been learning. It hasn't happened by accident. <laughs> I've learned a lot, but I've made so many mistakes. But I'm a better person, and I've learned humility. I sometimes forget that I'm, I've been humiliated, <laughs> and I'm a humble person, and I get, I get fussy. But I don't want you to worry about the us and them dichotomy. That's not what I'm trying to draw between Japanese and us. The Japanese have been humbled by our ability to innovate, to be creative, to just stand up and be ridiculous and make something of it. 
they listen to us. So, I we're going to move into a break, and I I want to kind of motor mouth this because I want to make some points that actually uh, will take me a little time. So I'll be back when you come back, and um, and we'll continue our discussion. That is putting us in a position to understand visual problem solving. I hope you find this interesting. Thanks. See you in a minute. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. So, the thing about problem solving, and I'm going to take a little another little approach, friendly approach to A3s, is that we have to organize ourselves around the noise around a problem. We have to address the noise that kind of uh, um, um, is in the environment of a problem. We have to find our way through to the heart, as, you, uh, as it were. We, and, and A3s are very, very useful there. But again, in solving a problem, what I want to see is a new process, a new procedure, a new method, a reliable method in the words of my sensei Fukuda, one that can be understood and adhered to and maintained and built upon, practiced fully and understood by everyone. I'll go through that paradigm in another show, the difference between what I know and I don't know and what I do and I can't do and what I understand and I don't. Most problems in most companies exist on such a nested level that a step towards clarifying that nested set of bad causes is a step that feels like it's a solution. And it is. It's a step forward, but it is not yet lasting because of the nested condition of most, most, most problems in the workplace today. 
And I want to tell you, nested in with those bad causes are a lot of good causes. So we'd be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So many factors impinge upon each other. And what I observe as people begin to eat away at the elephant called the problem, I observe some relief that progress has been made. But that's not the same as actually creating and embedding a solution that lasts. Now, where do I want to... I think what I want to do now is talk about traveling down the causal chain. I want to repeat something a little bit more clearly that I said before. I like to see a company that knows how to travel down the causal chain and not to a silver bullet destination. Because, as I said, in the vast, vast majority of organization, organizations, there's no such thing as a silver bullet solution. You travel down the causal chain to a branching series of contributing causes. Some of them are tiny, some of them are substantial, some of them are in the middle, but in their sum, they've created this problem. It's like a marriage that's gone wrong. It's not one thing. It's 25 things or 25,000 things. And you move through that very, very carefully with a will and a determination, with courage, with innovation, and with hope, clinging to hope. So, we want to discover a new best way. Do you know that Sheldahl, this is a manufacturer in Minnesota that I worked with in the 1980s, started working with this kind of cause and effect and the, the, the series of sequence of good causes, bad causes. And they ended up adopting one of the most beautiful definitions of problem that I have ever seen, ever read about, ever, ever experienced. And it's this. They defined, and this is 1987, they posted this. Their definition of a problem. A problem is anything that inconveniences Anyone downstream. A problem is anything that inconveniences anyone downstream. You cannot adopt that definition of problem without having a tremendous amount of control and a tremendous foundation of good causes. Can you hear the connection of the whole organization, the upstream, downstream, the network of causes and the network, the connectivity between the various functions. It was astonishing. What crackerjacks they were, and I presume still are. I haven't crossed paths with them in about 20 years. But the definition itself bespeaks of a remarkable level of control and skill and insight and willingness and service, motivating in its simplicity in the understanding of the connectivity of causes we call work. Okay. So you've got some chronic, complex, costly problems, and they need to be attacked. And they have to be attacked through what I call I-driven. So I'm going to see if I can squeeze this in before my time runs out. I wish I had Chad to hold up a card saying, you've got seven minutes. Maybe you can whisper that in my ear, Chad, if you're listening. How many minutes do I have left? Because I want to start on a sequence that's talking about the, the voice of the user in problem solving. In my lexicon of categories of visual functionality, of which visual problem solving is one category, 
I continue to require that the language of operational excellence and operational problem solving is I-driven. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? That I. I look for the voice of the user. That voice in visual order, visual displays, visual metrics, visual leadership. Wait until we get to visual leadership. You'll see what I'd like the leader to do. I look for the conversation between that depth in us, the will, that deep eye, and the exterior world. But I want that eye to be strong. I call it eye-driven. I want it to be strong. I believe if it is not present and accounted for that we experience a diminishment of possibility that we don't even know about because it it exists in the realm of possible solution, a possible horizon, a possible change. So we often don't see the voice of the user in problem solving even at the beginning in the metric that is used to show the evidence of the problem. Most of the time these measures are measures that monitor and they simply show the history of problem solving, of the problem, I'm sorry, of the problem, the history of the problem behaving. That's what I meant to say. And that history is usually in the voice of the boss or the boss's boss. It's going to be a percentage point, 5% increase in defects, 98.6% on-time delivery and disappointing, we're supposed to be up to 99, an abstraction, the corporate voice. The power of the eye cannot be underestimated in our lives or our work, and certainly in special circumstances such as those represented in systematic problem solving, the eye needs to be found and surfaced and become a focal point. That's very important. We just touched upon this when we were talking about metrics. Let me give you an example. Well, first I want to say executives, when we talked in the show about visual metrics, I ended by saying executives own all metrics. Why? Because metrics are the way that executives and managers learn about and drive their organization. Metrics, that data, are the tools of the executive, of the manager. Just as much as a wrench is to an assembler, a torch to a welder, CAD CAM is to an engineer, and this keyboard is to me. But because executives own those metrics doesn't mean they need to be in their voice. In fact, that is almost always... Always, I'll say, counterproductive. Yes, I'll say always. It goes against the very outcome that the executives want, which is to see those outcomes improve, which is the metrics are mirroring that. So the metrics have to be in the voice of a user. Let me give you a quick example. So there was this, guy, this manager, this owner who had seven, a franchisee who had seven convenience stores. And every quarter, he would have a meeting with his seven managers in one of the back rooms and talk about performance. But he was noticing that after lunch, he starts talking. Everybody goes to sleep. These are his managers, and they're going to sleep. He'll say something like, over the last 36 weeks, Chad, will you whisper in my ear how much time I have left? Over the last 36 weeks, sales have been off in our three stores by 2.09%. What the heck does that mean? Sales have been off in our three stores by 2.09%. The franchisee owner was beside himself. He was losing money. And people, his managers were going to sleep. And then it occurred to him. He said, you know what? That's my language. 
that shortfall of 2.09% over a, one quarter. It wasn't 36 months. It was 36-week period. 36 weeks. And he said, I have to bring this home to my team so they are motivated to do something about it. Some motivated others to say, time to find a new job. Or who cares? He was getting the kind of who cares. So he did a step down. And I want to give you, as your homework assignment, I want you to think about stepping down your metrics. And what he did was this. He met the next quarter and he said, okay, we had a shortfall of 2.09%. That's a loss of $244,000. Or let me translate that, translate that $6,000 short of a quarter of a million dollars. Or another way to look at it, a shortfall of $81,333.33 per store. And what that means is $6,777.77 per week across all three stores or a shortfall of $2,259.26 per store or, and people are sitting up in their seat because they begin to see the eye in it. They begin to be able to identify themselves. And then he put the capper on or a shortfall of $26.90 per store per hour. And the response was, oh, wow, $26 per hour? I can do something about that. Bingo, bingo. We have solutions in the making. I'm not saying this is a chronic, complex, costly problem like you're dealing with, but I'm saying that you've got to, first of all, in order to trigger motivated problem solving and get that eye to come out, you better find a way to make that metric speak to me so that I can align with the corporate intent. That's the point here. Hmm? So, and that's the point that I want to say about getting the I involved in the problem solving. I'm talking about chronic, costly, complex problems, the kind that you want to see problems, go to biomedical. They've got the government on them, big thumb on their head, and they still have these very complex scientific problems. Chronic, you know, costly, complex. So I hope that, so this has been a foundation today for us to be able to talk more about visual problem solving next week. I'll figure out soon in the next few days whether or not I can squeeze everything about problem solving that I want to share with you into another show. We may take two shows. Let me figure that out. I want this to be meaningful and useful for you. I'd like you to experiment with these things. I'd like you to see the visual workplace as a friend and a partner something that can help you reconceptualize the good work you're already doing so that you can make, the, make a greater contribution. We all want to contribute. We all want to be heroes. And uh, I think that workplace visuality, visual problem solving in this case, can advance your journey in that regard. I've had a wonderful time speaking with you today, as I do all the time. <laughs> Let's see what happens next. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for your time. And I'm signing off. See you the next time. I'm going to India. India. (laughs) See you later. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening. 
Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.